0: give you a little tip on how I do it all while keeping my kids happy and content and that's wearing them in the Ergo Baby Omni 360. I love my Ergo Baby Omni 360 because it allows me to get stuff done while they want to be held. In the 360 you can actually use it from the point that they're that little tiny human nugget that's all squishy and really needy up until the point that they might actually break your back. Although there is great support I use it when they're cranky at dinner time, but obviously someone still needs to make dinner. Cleaning, DJing. Go to fruitsandmotherhood.com forward slash ergo baby to get free express shipping on any order. That's fruitsandmotherhood.com forward slash ergo baby. Now back to this amazing episode. Hi, my name is Linda Fruits from Fruits of Motherhood and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Erica from Happy as a Mother on Instagram. Don't forget to stick around to the very end because we're gonna find out the difference between the average mom worrying versus postpartum anxiety. But first, let's start with you, hi. Hello, how are you? I'm wonderful, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I am a psychotherapist. I was a psychotherapist in like generalized mental health for a number of years and then I became a mom and it rocked my world to the core Mm -hmm. and I quickly learned through my own experience that maternal mental health is a thing, one that I was not exposed to in my schooling at all. Mm -hmm. And I have since for the past few years, specialized and got additional training in maternal mental health. And I consider myself a mom therapist. So a therapist that. that helps moms to transition into motherhood, adjust to motherhood.
0: So is your specialty mainly new moms, so to speak, I guess?
1: I work with moms across like The whole mom journey or the whole mom lifespan. But I think Mm -hmm. that there are some key moments that really put us sort of at risk or that are most challenging in motherhood. And that's Mm -hmm. the initial adjustment. Holy smokes, right? Like there's nothing that prepares us for that. Other ones are like adding additional children to the family, struggling with infertility. There are some sort of like key moments sort of Mm -hmm. that are maybe make us most vulnerable in our journey of motherhood. But then Mm -hmm. also there's this kids go on to school and we want to reclaim our identity more or what does it look like to refine ourselves again so lots of different sort of niche areas that can go into even
0: that's awesome and tell me about your family
1: i have three boys i have my oldest will be six in april a four-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. And and, um, they were like 22 months and 18 months apart. I got like thrown into the deep end of mothering, I feel like. Uh And I'm appreciative for that hard and challenging time because it's really birthed my whole platform, to be honest. It's really what brought me to this place of just like, how is there no support for people going through this in the way that I felt like I I didn't have it or I hadn't come Mm -hmm. across it.
0: Mm -hmm. And when did you start your Instagram?
1: I started my Instagram on my, I think it's my third maternity leave. It started out really like this random mom hack, like make it to nap the things that I was doing with the kids to like make it through the day on mat leave type of a thing. Mm -hmm. And then I quickly realized that it, I could marry my specialty and what I do in terms of my profession in a way to support moms that they really needed and that really wasn't out there. So that would have been, I wanna say two, just about two years ago now, probably.
0: Okay, awesome. Yeah. That's wonderful. Your Instagram has obviously blown up in a short period of time.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of trying to understand the business of Instagram, right? And then we always are <laughs> right. The ever-changing algorithm yeah. and business of Instagram and finding the the content and the things that really moms struggle with the most and really need the most support in. And i I think I'm sort of getting in the hang of that now.
0: Yeah, I noticed that you started doing a invisible load series
1: yeah so to
0: speak or is that like a thing or did I just like (laughs) yeah that's
1: totally a thing this particular week has been a featured week of invisible loads Uh Um, it's actually something that is that I've become most known for we actually had Snoop Dogg share one of them we had Ashley Graham share one of them particularly that one was about the invisible load of raising um, black children in the U.S. and, and in Canada because my children are biracial and I collaborate on that post with another account. Yeah. I do the invisible load post because I feel like moms really struggle with shame and uh, a feeling of failure or like an example. Yesterday I shared a laundry post, the the invisible load of managing laundry. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us will look at like our laundry pile and feel like so stressed out by it and not understand why just folding clothes feels like such a task, but really we look at that clothes and we see I've got to sort out what fits and what doesn't fit. I've got to now switch over the seasonal clothes, the clothes in the dresser don't fit. So I've got to clear out the dresser in order to put the laundry away. And this one seemingly simple task actually turns into a whole afternoon of invisible work for us. Mm -hmm. So helping moms see why things feel so heavy or why that load feels so much just is really validating, I think. And that's why those do so well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That laundry one spoke to me for sure, because my, you should see my laundry room and I'm like,
1: why can't I just do it? I just can't do it. (laughs) Right. Like as if it's just one simple thing, but it's not, but we have this expectation and then we feel like we're falling short. And that's the part I try to protect moms from like, we don't need to live in this shame and guilt. If we can understand why we're feeling this way, we can talk our way through it differently.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Definitely. I think that post alone
0: actually helped me realize that it's not just one thing and it's not just the dishes. It's like, it's right. What do I do with the kids while I'm doing the dishes?
1: (laughs) Right. And like, where are these dishes going to go? And like, we're cooking and we're doing multiple things at the same time. And it's a lot of invisible work as moms a lot of invisible work that goes unnoticed and unseen so to call some light to it and just say like i see what you're doing really resonates with a lot of moms
0: i feel like you must get a lot of thank you messages
1: i do i do and i've started to screenshot them and save them for a rainy day on instagram when people decide to to not send me such nice messages because that also happens
0: i can't believe it with yours Uh, too
1: Oh, of course, yes. People have expectations of me and how I should speak and behave at times. And Mm -hmm. that's the, with every sort of blessing of a platform, that is the one sort of downside that I've had to grow a bit of a thick skin to and have some healthy boundaries around. But Mm -hmm. yeah, so those lovely appreciative messages and the reviews that come in are things that I really hold on to.
0: You should totally make like the little coffee books. A little collection? Because- if you're like me, my screenshots are, how do you find them in your,
1: I know it's true that there could be an invisible load of just organizing the digital content in my phone. Like that's something I could do.
0: Absolutely. Oh my God. And I know I need to, I have like 30,000 photos on my phone. Like I know I need to like do something with it, but I just don't know. I I keep ignoring it.
1: Right. Or even the idea of doing my kids like one year baby book, the last one, sorry, third child has not been done because there are so many pictures to sort through that just like I can't mentally bring myself to entertain that task because there's so many pieces to it. Right. I get that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about relationships because I noticed um, on your Instagram too, you do talk a lot about it and obviously bringing a new baby into the world definitely affects a relationship almost
1: immediately. Even before. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. You mentioned something about resentment building up in relationships. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. So we've really been highlighting. Psychometry and I, who I run my workshops with, mm-hmm. Dr. Asherina Reem, and I have been highlighting relationships lately because we're offering a special workshop series on relationships. There is so much around resentment and feeling like the role we fall into as mothers is unfair and so much of this there's so many layers there's like family layers there's societal layers there's individually what's been modeled in our own family like layers upon layers but one of the things that we've noticed is that it really starts and this feeling of unfairness almost starts for us as women if we're the women or if we carry as moms not all moms carry but if we start in pregnancy even Our bodies are changing. Our diet has to change. Already all of these things start happening and we watch our partner carry on life as usual to some degree. And so this unfairness or sometimes this resentment can start to plant little seeds, I guess. Mm -hmm. And if there's not strong communication around that, if there isn't uh, closeness and intimacy and some really strong foundations to work through those things, they can create really big divides or a lot of anger can get in the way, a lot of frustration.
0: Absolutely. I can definitely attest to that
1: in my relationship. (laughs) Yeah. I mean,
0: I feel like it's very common. How do you work through it? What would be your tips?
1: Well. I shared a post earlier, I think it was last week and it came out of a conversation I was having with Osherina where I was like, for me, resentment had everything to do with me sitting at home covered in spit up, exhausted, not showered for like three days, watching my husband, like put on his suit, look handsome and like walk out of the house yeah. and Nothing for him had changed or like his behavior, like he wanted to be home, he wanted to be supportive. And really what it was for me at that time was his freedom was this constant glaring reminder of how much my life had changed in that season. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And so the first step of working through resentment is understanding that our anger or our judgment or our criticism actually has to do with an unmet need in ourself and sometimes to do with our partner and their behavior. But oftentimes when I work with women, like their partner is working to provide for their family, or this is the agreement that has been in place, like their behavior isn't, it's not that they don't want to be supportive. Like this is an agreed upon system. My husband has to go to work while I'm on maternity leave. Right. So it's not that he didn't want to support me. It was just like, every time this would happen, this grief in me would come up about missing my own life. Resentment is like pausing and understanding. Like when I'm saying you always get to have lunch with your coworkers, what am I saying? It's like, I really want a break. I want lunch. I want to see my friends, right? And so I think that's one of the first steps is sort of recognizing what those you statements or those resentments are indicating in us as an unmet need underneath all of that. That's amazing. That's profound. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And awareness of that is the very first step. We don't even need to share practical skills on what to do with that. If we just pause and say, oh, I'm in the, you never do this. You always do that. There's an unmet need there. Like, what is it? That in itself can change things in relationships. Oh my gosh. Yeah, for
0: sure. <laughs> I think it just changed mm-hmm. mine. <laughs> <laughs> because it's true. I say to him, I'm like, you get to go. You just get to yeah. go all day. Like, no right. stress. Like if I leave the house for 30 minutes, I'm a mess. But it's not his fault. <laughs> right.
1: It's me. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, like, what do we need? And I think that there is this romanticized idea that our partner's gonna come in, take over, tuck us into bed, make us a tea, and like tend to our needs. But what I've come to realize is we don't even know what we need in that moment. Mm-hmm. And if I don't know what I need, how in the hell can I expect my partner? to via telepathy like what how (laughs) right but there's just this romanticized idea of how they should show up for us and yeah working to be more clear in our communication and our understanding of our needs and you mentioned
0: something about blaming and criticizing which I guess is kind of goes back to that you statement kind of thing yeah elaborate on that a little bit
1: Well, we fall into these patterns of behavior in our relationships when our needs go unmet. So we all have needs in our relationships. We're human beings and those needs are incredibly valid. And when we don't have the assertive communication skills or the the productive and healthy ways to communicate those needs, then our needs go underground and they pop up and try to get themselves met in ways that can be unproductive right? That might be like criticisms. Maybe that's been modeled for us. Maybe we've seen that in our parents or other relationships, or maybe we've been criticized or whatever. And so we're trying to highlight the behavior that the person is doing so that they will stop and meet our need, but we're not actually communicating the need. So once... When these needs have gone unmet, these unhelpful patterns of behavior start to kind of sink their teeth in to our relationships. Mm -hmm. And there's so many really practical skills and simple things we can do to try to back out of those patterns and get our needs met in an effective way. And what are some
0: quick tips for that too?
1: Well, the turning a you statement to an I statement, right? Instead of you always do this or you never do that. I'm, I feel like I need a break or I'm really feeling under supported when you work late all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. So like addressing our feeling and our need that's going unmet is a really practical way, even just identifying what our own need is instead of, instead of blaming. So those you statements go to blame as if it's the other person's problem, but buying that pause to check in on our own need. So, some simple things, I say simple, that take lots of repetition and practice, right? Not that change overnight by any means, but simple things that we can practice and put in place.
0: And how would you recommend a mom with like maybe some bubbling issues? How would you suggest for her to talk to her partner about that?
1: Well, I think that it's like if we find ourselves in these patterns all the time and are having a really challenging time doing it on our own any other skill that we're trying to learn. I'm not going to walk into the gym and think that I know all the things I need to do to maybe change my diet or change my lifestyle or like whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to work with somebody at first who can help me through that. So there is no shame in having somebody support you, whether it's your own individual therapist or a couples therapist. There are so many incredible resources I can think about even on Instagram of Mm -hmm. therapists who have courses and content that's extremely helpful. So our own individual piece is to get comfortable with exploring and advocating for our own needs because I know that we as moms struggle with that. So I guess that's a great place to start.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, as a new mom, you shift so much of your focus onto your little ones. You forget right. like,
1: hey, I need to check in with myself every once in a while. Totally. We fall into the self-sacrificing kind of routine, right? Yes. And does that have anything to do with being the default parent? Can you explain that a little bit? So the default parent is really like the person, and I feel like this is generally mom. I think about the default parent as being the person who has to make adjustments when the daycare says the kid is sick in this pandemic has to readjust their schedule while maybe the one other partner has less flexibility or doesn't have as much adjusting to do. Mm -hmm. And typically this falls on mom. Like I think about even filling out doctor's forms and school forms and who gets the phone calls. And Mm -hmm. an example of this, I was getting ready for um, a live event. It was a virtual event because of COVID and Uh there was like Gonna be thousands of people there I'm up 20 minutes from going on stage in the green room get a call from my son's school they think he's broken his arm and I'm like oh my, oh my gosh I'm about to go live I've committed to the speaking engagement the yeah. school calls me like what am I supposed to do right and it put me in this really interesting position because my husband was working from home in covid he could go. He's capable of going. He's his father. And yet, for me to ask him to do it so I could do my work felt so counter what we're taught about moms, Mm -hmm. right? And I did it. And I did my speaking event. And I did it with some guilt that I had to work through. And my husband felt awful because he knew I wanted to go. Uh, But I think that that's kind of a snippet of what it looks like to be that default parent Mm -hmm. it's hard to break out of those patterns and they're kind of handed to us i think Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases right i mean i'm like we were talking
0: about the arrangements earlier in relationships and my arrangement is that my husband works i am was a stay-at-home mom now we we do some i work from home a little bit more than i used to but i am totally the default parent like when things go wrong, it's me who takes care of them. And I remember with the new baby being able to send my husband to the doctor with my oldest, like if he was sick, especially this is like a recent example, I was yeah, kinda felt weird about it. like he was taking care of my son, and I wanted to be there. It's just yeah, the mom guilt. I just let's talk about that. how do we
1: what do we do with that? It's so interesting because you're explaining that, and it's a double-edged sword. This because mm-hmm. in your case that so you've explained and in my case we both have supportive partners who were doing the duties, right? Like doing exactly. the thought, fa- like doing fatherhood, like they were involved, and yet we felt the need to be there and intervene. And this is almost like treading the line of like maternal gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. in a way. And maternal gatekeeping is where moms really like control the sort of access or amount of help another parent can give. And I think about this, like when my oldest, like my firstborn was really young and he would cry. Like Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the one that soothed him. So if my partner had him, I would take him and Uh I would soothe him. And I reinforced this pattern of being the default parent, being the preferred parent, when it's so healthy and necessary for my partner to learn how to tolerate his cries, how to soothe his cries, right? So there is a part of this that is handed to us based on like society and, you know, how our relationship is distributed or whatever. But there's also this piece that we reinforce because of our own maybe anxiety or wanting to soothe or our own mom guilt like you had brought up mom guilt is a an interesting topic that has many sort of bunny trails and one is one that comes to mind is like if we work really hard at not having mom guilt and even then, moms will feel guilty. Like, should I feel bad that I'm away from my son right now? Like, there's right. just so many layers to this particular topic. I know. It's almost as if you're not worrying that that is like, oh my gosh, I, do you even care kind of a yeah. feeling? So, there's a lot, I guess, yeah. when it comes to mom guilt.
0: <laughs> Actually, I made a post about that. I'm like, I hear other moms' mom guilt, and I'm like, oh shit, am I supposed to be worrying about that? <laughs>
1: Right? Like, should I feel bad that I just like left for a couple of hours? Or should I feel bad that I did that? Like, as if it's a badge of honor, the more we worry, the more we care. That's a really slippery slope and a slippery belief. Because if we're living a life according to our values, and what's important for us in motherhood, of course, we're going to have moments of guilt where we course correct like oh I acted out of alignment with my values let me rein that in that didn't feel good that's actually when we talk about guilt is an adaptive feeling that helps us stay on course with our values and what's important to us. Shame on the other hand is a very I say unhelpful, but it's like a it's a feeling that like gets down into our bones and stays there and lingers. And it's the distinction the distinction between the two is if I make a mistake like let's say I forget some freaking spirit day at school because lord help me we know there are so many and i forgot like a whole spirit week this week whatever still a good mom so i forget this and guilt says oh shoot my bad i need to put that on the calendar that was like oh not the best momming moment gonna course correct on that Mm -hmm. that's actually guilt shame says Oh, I'm I'm the worst mom. How could I forget that? And it becomes personalized about our ability as a mom. So when we're talking mom guilt, we're actually really talking mom shame, and we're talking this like system of beliefs or like this constant things happening that reaffirm how sucky we are as moms. Mm-hmm. And that piece is harmful and needs to be addressed and worked on. We are not our mistakes we are not our bad choices. We have the ability in that situation next time to put it on our calendar and not forget spirit week, right? right? So it's, our mistake is not a reflection of who we are as a mom. I love that.
0: Yeah. That's very important, (laughs) very. And if you were to talk to a mom about shame, what would you tell a new mom who maybe do you, would you even talk to her about that? Something that she hasn't experienced yet or?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things, one of the reasons we experience such strong shame is that we come into motherhood with unrealistic expectations. Oh gosh, we come yes. into motherhood with a romanticized version of what motherhood is going to be like. Mm-hmm. And those unrealistic expectations when met with the reality of motherhood set us up for shame, set us up for feeling like we're not good enough or like we're failing. And so um, working to have flexibility in our expectations is a way that we can work to alleviate or soften some of that blow. Like when we talk about adjustment to motherhood, we talk about matrescence and I feel like this could again be a whole thing in itself, but matrescence is the becoming of a mom and it has some key Tasks. It's like this developmental stage in our life, and there are tasks associated with it. And one of those is reconciling our expectations to the actual reality we find ourselves in. And I think that if we start there, we can realize it's actually not us that's flawed in motherhood. It was our expectations that set us up to feel like we were failing.
0: And where do we all get these expectations? It's like a a deck of cards that's been handed to almost every new mom. Here you go, here's how you're gonna fail.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I'm actually um, writing a book proposal around this very topic right now. It's as if we have this, from the time we can understand language and concepts, we're little, right? It's as if we have this, I think about um, this visual in my mind, like my Google Drive, and there's this folder labeled mom, right? And all the things that we see and observe throughout our life related to motherhood get filed away in this folder of just sort of like data about who moms are, what they do, what they're supposed to do, that's modeled from our parents, like our own mothers, our maybe stepmothers, from societal, like how mothers are portrayed in the media and in movies and shows, social media, right? There are so many cultural, religious ways that mothers are portrayed. So many, we're talking like millions and millions of of snippets of data that form this imaginary figure of what a mom should be. The thing that is troubling about that for us is that we never had any criteria by which to filter that data. If you think about your filing system at home, you get all this mail coming in. You're not gonna file the junk mail in the important folder. Like it gets recycled and gets tossed out. Mm -hmm. But in motherhood, As we're little, we don't have that value system yet. We don't have that criteria yet. So when we enter into motherhood, we have to go back and reevaluate those expectations and where they came from. A lot of it is junk that's been put there by other people that doesn't even align with how we want to show up in the world. Mm -hmm. And we're following this or like aiming for this okay good enough mother perfect mother Mm -hmm. we're trying to be her embody her and it's this vague moving target that is like ill-defined and we don't even know really what it is right so Going back over those expectations, I actually have a journal. It's called a Motherhood Roadmap. It's a five-week guided journal exercise to help us demystify that target, to get rid of some of the expectations that maybe aren't ours and to really hone in on the ones that align with our personal value system. And it's, it takes some intentional work, but it's definitely worth it uh, in the long run.
0: I would say that my expectations as my first-time mom also Mm -hmm. changed Mm -hmm. when I became a mother of two. My expectations for myself lowered exponentially (laughs) and I wish I would have started there when I had my first Mm
1: -hmm. because
0: I was so anxious like his whole life. (laughs) Yeah. It was it's bizarre and I just I wish that like We could gift that and it sounds like that's what you're doing for these other moms is to understand that you don't have to do that to yourself i felt like i had to do it to myself
1: well it's this idea of the perfect mother and i have a whole episode um, on my podcast about perfectionism this is an ever woven theme into the conversations that i have
0: Mm
1: -hmm. we come into motherhood i a type perfectionist want to do and be all the things get run into this wall of motherhood that I was like, what in the hell did I just hit? Mm -hmm. Right. That has no manual, no perfect way, no true and one right way, because we all mother according to our own values and what is important to us. So if we're a perfectionist trying to do it right, do it perfect. And then we're looking to peers and society and the internet for all these conflicting ways of how we're supposed to show up as moms, Mm -hmm. it is incredibly overwhelming and anxiety producing, but there is no right way. And I think that was really the blessing of my second time experience too, was Mm -hmm. I had settled into my own way of mothering. I'd settled into my own values and what was important to me. Mm -hmm. And that allowed me to just make decisions without overwhelm and I'm sure that I had anxieties about other things cause I'm an anxiously wired person and that's okay. <laughs> but but there was more confidence in the decisions I was making. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. The expectations that I also placed on myself with my,
0: let's see, my second child, he, I don't even know. I guess it's, you really find yourself the the further along you go. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even know where I'm going with this. I got like on a tangent. Okay, so let's go back to relationships just a little bit. And I noticed that my husband triggers me a lot. Mm. I know that has to stem from the unmet needs as well. But my kids also trigger me. Like I am almost like my worst self with these people. Mm. I'm sure a lot of other moms feel the same way. Can you describe or explain that?
1: Well, it's interesting. It sounds like you're describing like postpartum rage could be a piece. There's a couple of different pieces that can be going on. One of the things that I think I anticipated the least I was not prepared for in becoming a mom was the amount of energy and time I would have to spend on regulating myself as an autonomous person I regulated myself in the world and sometimes that even felt hard as somebody who maybe struggled with some anxiety and things. And then entering into motherhood, I now have these three human beings and a partner and whatever who are tethered to me emotionally, Mm -hmm. psychologically, physically half the time. (laughs) And my ability to regulate is now also tied to how like my capacity essentially and how much these little humans are drawing on that if that makes sense Mm -hmm. so you think about it like your capacity being your battery for energy or ability to like life in the day right when you're an autonomous individual person you regulate what pulls on that capacity just you like Mm -hmm. you can decide oh do i want to do this tonight do i want to do that am i going to put five hours into a project and stay up till 2 a.m like is that going to impact me tomorrow? I can sleep in like all of these individual things Mm -hmm. we can do to regulate our own capacity. When we enter into motherhood, our capacity is dictated for us in a way. Mm -hmm. Right. And this makes me think about, there's actually an example for my husband. He studied a year for this really important designation exam that he had. I mean, a whole year's worth of studying. I got mastitis the night before the exam and the kids didn't sleep and I had a fever and chills. He was up like most of the night and then had to go and write this designation exam that he studied for an entire year, right? And so when we think about our capacity, we can no longer just think about ourselves. And so the reason that this is so important, it plays back into our expectations. So if I want to have this list of all the things I'm going to do in the day, because I'm a perfectionist and I have this laundry list of things I want to get done and I'm operating under the idea that my capacity is like it was before I was a mom. I'm going to be so frustrated that I can't get these things done because these kids keep interrupting me or they're not sleeping on their nap time, or I had this content that I needed to create and they're not being agreeable because they're teething or whatever. And it leads to frustration and resentment or rage, even within our own mothering role.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. So there is that piece of it and then there is this mummy rage piece I call it and and we have a webinar on or workshop on this that we really do a deep dive into mummy rage
0: mm-hmm.
1: where where there could be anxiety and depression as underlying factors of this uh, irritability and we kind of go through what that can look like but then also uh just how to regulate ourselves when our capacity is running so low
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah, I don't know. I feel like I could go on about this stuff all day long. It's so <laughs> I do, I mean, in fact, I do usually.
0: Do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, because you've mentioned it a couple times too. So for other people who want to dive further into this, you have blog posts and podcasts too, both
1: or. Well, I have podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, which we're working on transcribing all of them into blog posts. My team and I. Okay, wonderful. And uh, workshops. So, yeah, lots of resources. My posts even break down a lot of these concepts on Instagram and kind of bite-sized pieces. Lots of different resources there. The podcast really gets into like the meat of a lot of these issues because we can go kind of deeper into each individual piece. But Mm -hmm. yeah, lots of different resources. Okay just for anyone listening that wants more. I also want more, so
0: I'll be there too. And then back to like intimacy in a relationship, a hot topic all the time on my Instagram is that moms feel touched out. They also, they just simply don't wanna have sex after they had a baby.
1: Like, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, sex is a really big topic. I do these weekly polls in my stories, like these an- anonymous yes or no mm-hmm. questions. Sex in- inevitably becomes like a really big one that moms want to know more about. Like, are you in a sexless marriage? Do you guys have sex more than once a week or once a month or once every six months? Or That's funny. Um, People
0: ask me the same thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, they really want to know. And I think that there's a few pieces here, some really important pieces to unpack. So one, at six weeks, we are physically cleared to be having sex postpartum. Are we mentally or emotionally ready yet? That is for you to decide. You do not have to jump back into having sex if you are not there and you are not comfortable, right? And reasons why we're not going to feel comfortable. Well, we're going through the biggest transition of our entire life and we're sleep deprived and it's not the most sexy time of life. There's a relationship expert that that I know and talk with a lot. And she's sort of of this expectation that our sex life and routine is going to be way out of like whack until pretty much one year postpartum is real. Like when baby starts sleeping through the night, you regain your evenings back. Then you guys can really start to think about what that new normal is going to look like for you and what it's going to be. And there's also some physical uh, sort of con- contributors to that. So when we're breastfeeding, it impacts our estrogen or estradiol, and it actually can impact wetness and arousal and like lubrication and things like that. So sex can feel more uncomfortable. We may struggle with vaginal dryness. So there are multiple pieces that can play a role in that. Another one being, we aren't just like laying in bed in each other's arms, talking and having these chances for like spontaneous arousal to build up as women. Right. So much of our sexual arousal and sort of like mojo, if you will, really comes from those like emotional connectedness. And it takes a lot more for us to be physically aroused than our partners often. And there are obviously exceptions to this. There's different. Sometimes the woman is the the partner who has a higher arousal than the other partner, but Sort of generally what I get brought with my clients is feeling this lower arousal. So sometimes my community talk about like scheduling it in, though it seems unsexy or having like a sex candle or having like a sign to show the partner that like they're interested today and I'm committed to getting in the mood, even if I'm not in the mood right now, very rarely in motherhood. With three kids and my laundry list of things to do, am I randomly, spontaneously like, oh, sex would be really great right now as (laughs) I have like 15 other things going on? Sometimes I do. And what the stars would have to align, and chances are my husband's at work and it's a missed opportunity, right? I think how we structure and approach our sex life in parenting also, again, those expectations versus reality. Mm -hmm. right what are we expecting it to look like are we expecting it to look like how it was before baby and (laughs) right and what can it look like now and what works for us now what are we happy with now Mm -hmm. right you mentioned something about barriers
0: to an intimacy is that something different than what we talked about
1: well barriers to intimacy would be like multiple things like timing a child sleeping in the same room because you're still postpartum like anything that might interfere with that time that can also look like emotional barriers like feeling under supported by partner feeling like if there's a lot of criticism and resentment in a relationship at that moment you're probably not going to feel a rouser or, or a pull towards your partner in that way. So there are emotional and physical barriers. And I think that in the postpartum period, particularly a baby not sleeping through the night, constantly being touched out because you're feeding, whether that's bottle feeding or breastfeeding, mm-hmm. a baby potentially sleeping beside you in a bassinet or like whatever. There are just so many uh, barriers that interfere. And to that, I would say that intimacy does not have to be sexual intercourse in those times right intimacy can look so many different ways to bring on like a connectedness to our partner and maybe we explore more what those are um, and how we can feel closeness and connected to our partner i think
0: on um, my husband too like i try to explain to him like i need a little more emotionally right before we get busy and for men, my man in particular, that's not as important to him. I'm like, I need a little bit more. And I, I wonder,
1: do you hear moms talk about that a lot too? Yeah, absolutely. When we talk about intimacy, sexual intimacy is one facet of that. Then there's emotional intimacy. Then there's like intimacy based on like our values and like our sort of morals and values aligning and the things that are important to us. And there's intimacy in just the communication and feeling seen and validated. There are like multiple levels to intimacy. And if none of those other aspects are a part of our relationship or are lacking, uh, especially for women, physical intimacy is going to fall really low on the rung of what's important, right? And so some of the places that we would start if I was working with a couple like in therapy or something would be okay, well, what are some other mutually enjoyable, intimate things that you guys can share together Mm -hmm. that feel like it's like that spark again? Like we're taking that interest in each other again. Maybe you're working on like a creative project together, creating something and that feels good and draws you together. Maybe it is some form of physical intimacy, like Showering or having a bath together, but there's no expectation of intercourse. There are ways for us to start to kind of rekindle that connection and intimacy that isn't all hanging on intercourse, right? Correct.
0: Yeah. Do you agree with the term, I've heard it, like you have to keep dating each other kind of a thing?
1: Totally. I think that... You have to invest in each other, Mm -hmm. right? And this is the part that's really hard for, like, I say young parents, like parents in the early stages of parenthood, is that we think about like our day as like a pie or like, or our capacity or however we want to look at it. There is such little left, even for ourselves at the end of the day. So when we think about having something to offer to our partner, it's really hard and taxing. And so I think getting creative and on the same page about what that offering of us to our partner is going to look like, it doesn't have to be intercourse, it can be creative projects it can be communication it can be naked snuggles in bed it can be whatever feels good and brings you guys closer and i think that starts with getting on the same page and having some conversations about that because having something for our partners is important we want them to have something for us right like we want them to support us and we want to figure out how to support them and i think that breaking out of this very tunnel vision of it has to be sexual intimacy or intercourse specifically and it can look other ways. I love that. That's huge. Yeah.
0: So then let's talk about anxiety and depression specific specifically postpartum. What is the difference between new mom worrying and postpartum anxiety?
1: Yeah, this is a big topic. One that I think that a lot of doctors and other professionals even miss the, the subtle nuances of. Mm -hmm. because there is this expectation that new moms will be anxious, like will worry they're new to this role. Sort of red flags or some things that I pay attention for when I'm, let's say, meeting a new mom for the first time one-on-one or whatever is things like, are we able to actually sleep when the baby's sleeping? Like when we put our head down at night, are we sleeping? Are we very vigilant and constantly checking on baby or is our anxiety causing us to, is it starting to interfere with our life in some way? And I'll give you an example of this, maybe a little bit of a trigger warning. We're going to talk about some intrusive thoughts here. I'm not going to go anything vivid, but just mm-hmm. intrusive thoughts can be a little bit hard. Sometimes intrusive thoughts are a really common way that anxiety shows up in the postpartum period. And those can look like, oh my gosh, what if my baby stops breathing or I'm going to drop the baby down the stairs when I'm walking down the stairs, things like that. These flashes or images or thoughts that come up that are very overwhelming and disturbing Mm -hmm. for moms. And so if we're really stuck in intrusive thoughts and anxiety, we might start to avoid things Mm -hmm. that can look like I might not want to carry my baby down the stairs and have somebody else do it I might scoot down the stairs on my bum to avoid dropping baby I might not push my stroller anywhere near the water and only stay on roads that is not near the lake these types of avoidance things that can come up is another piece that I sort of screen for and pay attention for real strong fixation on when baby's feeding, how much they're feeding, when their naps are, when they should go down. And I say that knowing that all moms worry about those things. But I mean like really, like really rigid about those things and not having any like flexibility around, let's say the time baby goes down for nap or these types of things. And those are a couple that come to my mind initially
0: mm-hmm. yeah I, I kind of believe that I definitely had postpartum anxiety and I had no idea that would he was even a thing exactly like I, I, know. I definitely I want to expose that for my followers too because I know some of them are also new moms it sounds like maybe
1: I did almost yeah. <laughs> well what kinds um, of things do you think like like maybe they can learn from your experience what kinds of things were you feeling?
0: I I was terrified of, it sounds silly, my husband caring for our kid, like. Yeah. I was, that was just very, it was hard for me. I was like, how is he going to do it? Like, it, it was hard. It was hard for me to leave my child. Yeah. Like, I don't think I let him go away from me in a car until maybe he was like one. Yeah. I was very emotional about that. And also when other people watched him that and water and just like it was a lot I was always everything was an issue like the eating was an issue the sleeping was an issue I was just um hot mess
1: (laughs) yeah well and, and a really big thing that comes out of this from what you're saying is that when we are struggling with postpartum anxiety it can really strain our relationships with partner, yes, but we're close enough to be able to, like, assert ourselves to them often. Mm-hmm. Our in-laws and our family members. Yeah. Because when we are, are trying to set boundaries with other people in our life that are based on anxiety, they may not understand them. And we may overuse our voice and overset boundaries sometimes, Mm -hmm. and it can put tension. So a lot of people end up in my office, even just because of like quarrels with like family members, not understanding because our postpartum anxiety is not a manageable amount of anxiety that we can cope through and, and work through. It is an amount of anxiety that starts to feel out of control and it starts to impact other parts of our life, like our relationships and what we're doing in our life and things like that. And so relationships with in-laws and a lot of tension there because they're not understanding how we want to work with baby can also be um, a red flag with an asterisk because there's always other things that can be going on there. But yeah.
0: Yeah. I would say that everything with my first child felt like life or death. Like. Right. It had to be this one way or literally death like that's just the best way I can describe it with my second child I had none of that
1: well postpartum anxiety has a way of turning everyday activities into safety concerns Mm -hmm. right so things like and I mean this may ruffle some feathers I don't know but things like allowing our kids to walk around while they're having a snack like Mm -hmm. controlling like like having grandparents not allow our kids to have a snack and like walk around the house and that maybe varies depending on age or things like that but like the idea of walking and eating can become such a big safety concern through the eyes of postpartum anxiety walking downstairs like again these things that feel like everyday activities when we're not experiencing anxiety now feel literally like life or death my brain is convinced that if you do that
0: Mm -hmm.
1: something bad is gonna happen yeah right mine
0: was my mother-in-law with i love her to death like thankfully we have a healthy relationship it was she would watch him and he would never eat dinner for her and to me that was like oh like right how's my child not gonna eat he's not gonna sleep like it just snowballs Yeah. And now my second child lives off peanut butter crackers. I'm like, he's fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? When my, like, third child was, like, licking the floor. When I went somewhere, I'm like, he'll be fine. Like, yeah. you know, it's germs. Totally, germs. Exactly. Like, pre-COVID, asterisk, pre-COVID. Yes, it, was, yes, yes. it wasn't in COVID. But <laughs> before everybody freaks out. But, um, right. yeah, if it's interfering in a way that it is causing problems. Like, anxiety is. The worst weatherman you've ever met.
0: I because that. that's a great he analogy. Is,
1: he or she or it or whoever is mm-hmm. in your mind saying, board up the windows. There is a freaking hurricane coming. You're not gonna survive it. And the actual weather is like a sun shower rolls through, and it was totally fine you were more than well equipped to handle it but our anxiety was would have had us like evacuating which yes. it does it tells us to get the heck out of there right so but yeah there's so many things we can learn around that and even how to not buy into that worst case scenario voice
0: what do you tell your moms that have postpartum anxiety now that have these intrusive
1: kind of thoughts there is a very real and physiological component to this Mm -hmm. Our brains literally change in the postpartum period. Our reproductive hormones are very involved in the chemicals in our brain and how they um, function and how much of them there are and how they, you know, function effectively. So there is a very physiological component to why women are more at risk during postpartum for anxiety or depression. In cases where it is really interfering, medications are an extremely effective option for moms that are sort of adamant against that or, or want to try other means before maybe trying medication. Mm-hmm. Therapy is an extremely helpful option because there are so many things that we can learn on how to sort of fact check that weatherman, right? Mm-hmm. Like, where is this coming from and why am I just believing this? Why do I feel like I need to start like stockpiling toilet paper and boarding up the windows like is this valid right now or is this fake news like what is going on here Uh right and there are like actual cognitive strategies and thinking strategies that we can learn to um, not just buy into that voice Mm -hmm. so therapy is a really great way to do that yeah those are the two main ways and it's hard because not everybody has access to therapy and these resources that's why i have the free podcast i have i dive into a lot of this on the podcast i have a membership community that's really cost effective for people who can't like it's not a replacement for therapy but i teach a lot of the same strategies there so, yeah it's wonderful but therapy being probably one of the best places to start okay super
0: so that's wonderful I definitely will need your it's on your website right
1: yeah it's Which called mother app and it's your happy mother.co okay. yeah yeah
0: just for everyone who wants to obviously get more and let's talk about the difference between postpartum anxiety
1: and depression so anxiety is a a strong fixation on worries a lot of clients have described it as like an overactive arousal system. Like we feel really worked up, really on edge, really like ready to react at any time kind of Mm -hmm. thing, right? And sleep can be impacted by that. That can also lead to like overwhelm and irritability and raginess because we're so on edge.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Postpartum depression shows up differently. It can also show up as irritability and rage which is a commonly missed symptom of postpartum depression, but it often shows up in really a lot of fatigue, a lack of motivation, a loss of interest in the things that usually make you happy. Mm -hmm. And practically speaking, this might look like finding it hard to get up and shower finding it hard to like make meals there is a feeling disconnected to your baby or your partner or your toddler like there there may be but a lot of moms buy into that one piece and say well I feel a connection with my child so I must not be feeling postpartum depression but Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be all of those like it doesn't you don't have to have each one of them Mm -hmm. you might just feel a couple of them and as a therapist who went through postpartum anxiety and depression after my third baby, I was in it. And as a trained mental health specialist, couldn't even identify it because it looked so different than what I thought on paper. For me personally, I was so had no energy and i had just had a baby so you think like of course i'm sleep deprived i'm and so distinguishing it especially during pregnancy because we can go through this during pregnancy and in the postpartum period when we're not sleeping is really hard for us as the person but also sometimes for our practitioners because there are these other sleep deprived pieces that play a role but i remember sitting on my couch it was maybe maybe a couple months postpartum with my third and and my in-laws and my husband were there and everybody was standing up and talking and like joking. And I just remember thinking to myself, everybody is like so happy. Like they're laughing. I don't feel that right now. Right. Like I don't like, and it was almost irritating to me that they were happy. And then I also was feeling like, And they're all just, like, always up and walking around. And I feel so exhausted that the idea of, like, standing around the house like what they were doing felt so draining to me. Mm -hmm. So there are these pieces of, like physically how we're feeling. And then of course there there can be thoughts of my my family would be better off without me or if I could just get a break, maybe if I hurt myself or got hurt and I had time in the hospital just to like have a break from how hard this all feels. You know, these types of thoughts as well. Depression and anxiety are something that are felt on a continuum or a spectrum, right? Some to the very severe some to the very minor and then there's sort of moderate to severe kind of in between there so either way wherever you fall on that spectrum for listeners if they're listening if you're questioning whether you're feeling depressed and whether you should get help that's usually the first red flag right like listen to that voice if you're questioning or saying something like I don't feel like myself, Mm -hmm. trust that instinct and get some help.
0: Okay, wonderful. And so did you not have any anxiety or depression with your other pregnancies? Just the third one?
1: In retrospect, I totally did. I was able to manage through them Mm -hmm. somehow. And adding a third unplanned pregnancy into the mix with two small children already really brought me to a breaking point, which I look back with such uh, appreciation for that time, which might sound strange, but that has birthed my whole trajectory now in what I do. So I've found such meaning in that experience, Mm -hmm. but for sure it was building and there for a period of time. And with my third had just been like five years of growing babies and breastfeeding back to back and no break and no. And it just brought me to this point of this is too much for me. This feels like a lot. Yeah.
0: You mentioned something on your Instagram about trauma affecting the anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that.
1: There's so many different ways that trauma can play a role in our postpartum experience. One of the main ways that I see with clients is traumatic experiences during pregnancy or labor and delivery, potentially. And I say that and my clients will say, but no, like nothing traumatic happened or I didn't almost die. It was just this thing. And we we minimize our own traumas because we compare them to others. And so even the title of trauma can feel very uncomfortable for people, Mm -hmm. but absolutely Birth, labor, and delivery not going how we expected, being rushed in for emergency C-section, unbearable pain, things happening unexpectedly or too fast, too quickly can all be things that are risk factors for us having some anxiety postpartum, unexpected news of anything health-related to the baby or needing extra testing or things like that, where we're not really sure what's going to happen with baby, Mm -hmm. there can be trauma and sort of almost PTSD symptoms around repeated losses and infertility can be a big thing. So there's lots of just traumas in themselves that can happen around getting pregnant, having losses, labor and delivery in itself. Or even being traumatized by like how negative your postpartum experience was and not wanting to have another baby because it was so deep and dark. And then there are also these other sets of traumas that we experience throughout our life that can impact how we parent. And that's a whole other conversation probably for another day. But if we have had any kind of trauma with like the medical system or physical trauma or assault, and then having to birth and have people touch us and things. So there's just multiple ways, I guess, mm-hmm. that trauma can play a role in our postpartum experience. Okay. And so if you think about your birthing experience and it feels very emotionally overwhelming and you have flashbacks of it and it brings up tears and there's a lot of emotion around it, then I suspect there's some underlying trauma and it's really helpful to process that through with a therapist because that pain is valid.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And before we go, I always ask the people the same two questions for their least favorite part of motherhood and their favorite part of motherhood just in an effort to normalize that it's okay to have a least favorite part of motherhood?
1: Of course. My least favorite part of motherhood, I would say not being the keeper of my time in the way I was before, right? Mm -hmm. My time being squeezed into the amount of time I have child care and then everything else is sort of dictated by everybody else. And so that was something that was hard for me to grieve. And that changes even with each season of motherhood that I'm in. Mm-hmm. The best part, I would say for me, obviously my children and, and all of that, the most unexpected best part for me personally was the healing that would come from motherhood. Never saw that coming. Right. Never thought it would strip me down to my core and then have me rebuild myself back up. And that has been the hardest, but the most beautiful journey. And, and obviously, the other most amazing part is the privilege of raising these little fierce humans that are. Mm-hmm pretty darn impressive if you ask me but (laughs) not that I'm biased to them or anything but
0: they are really cute I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I can imagine how many people are going to benefit from everything we've talked about here today. If you're not already following Erica on Instagram, you should do so for that bite-sized content. And then you can also listen to more of her stuff on her podcast and check out her website too, which is happyasamother.com. Dot co. Yes. Dot co. That's right. Because you are not in the States. Yeah. (laughs) You're in Toronto, right?
1: I am. I am.
0: Okay, yeah. Super. Well, thank you, everyone who's listening. Don't forget to subscribe to my website. Also at and You can be the first to hear about blog posts, podcasts, and all that fun stuff. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been fun.
0: Hey, mamas. The way we spend our money has changed a lot since we've had children. So to help with the mom guilt and the need to still buy cute things, the Fruits of Motherhood shop is donating proceeds of each sale to every mother Counts. Everymothercounts.org is a nonprofit organization that works to improve access to quality maternity care around the world. Just buy a hat, a shirt, or anything else in the Fruits of Motherhood shop and you help a mama and me. Just go to fruitsofmotherhood.com forward slash shop and use the code podcast to get 10% off anything in the store. That's fruitsofmotherhood.com forward slash shop. Promo code podcast. Hey mama. Do you enjoy a nice glass of wine after, or during, a long day of motherhood? Guess what? Me too. I want to tell you about Revel Wine Club. It's my new favorite way to get wine. Revel Wine Club is a personalized wine service tailored to your taste, budget, and lifestyle that makes buying great wine super easy. Tell them what type of wine you like, how many bottles, choose red, white, or both. Tell them how often you'd like each shipment, receive, sip enjoy girl check out which wine I'm drinking right now by going to fruits of forward slash one